This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. Today's recommendation is another one of the Great Courses series, The Italians Before Italy by Professor Kenneth Bartlett. This is a great lecture series that describes the events and rivalries that helped to form modern Italy as well as the modern Catholic Church. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 9, Filippo Lippi. As you may have guessed from the title, Fra Filippo Lippi is not necessarily the paragon of Christian virtue. In fact, he was a man driven by his passions for women, drink, and gambling. Filippo Lippi is one of those Renaissance painters whom most people have probably heard of but couldn't name one of his paintings. Most often, his name comes up as the teacher of Botticelli, one of the greatest and most well-known artists of the early Renaissance. This is a guy who was born into poverty and given over to a Carmelite monastery to become a monk and a priest, only to renounce his vows and become a notorious cad who chased women all over Florence. Unfortunately, this may be what happens when you send a small child to become a monk against his will, and unlike Fra Angelico, whose devout religious convictions led him to the monastery, Filippo Lippi became a monk merely because he was an orphan. After renouncing his vows and becoming a full-time painter, He's abducted by pirates and taken to North Africa as a hostage. I'm not going to tell you the end of that story just yet, but we'll get there before the end of the podcast. If you wanted to write an adventure story about a Renaissance artist in Florence, his life has everything from a tragic beginning to a love story to a high seas swashbuckling adventure. And if someone does write this story, which I hope they do, I promise I'm not going to ask for a cut. I just like to see these on the screen. These are the interesting tales of art history that never really get told. So often, art history classes can get reduced to a boring litany of dates and titles of works, but many of these artists lived interesting lives that could rival anything being put out by Hollywood today. Filippo Lippi was born in Florence sometime around 1406. His father was a butcher, and both parents died when he was very young. He was then raised by his aunt, but she eventually decided that it was too much to care for the child and turned the boy over to the Carmelite Monastery of Our Lady of Mount Carmel in Florence. So unlike Fra Angelico, who became a monk because of his own devout beliefs, Fra Filippo Lippi was forced into the order because of the death of his parents. Eventually, Filippo would be ordained as a priest, but painting was his true passion. It was likely in the monastery of Mount Carmel that Filippo first watched Masaccio, and according to Vasari, this inspired him to become a painter. 
He was described as a poor student who often scribbled rather than taking notes. In fact, he was such a troubled student that the prior of the monastery granted Filippo the opportunity to study painting in the hopes of making him a productive member of the monastic community. He would soon be praised as the new Masaccio. And according to Vasari, this is the point when he throws off his habit and renounces his vows. There seems to be some dispute about this because he's still referred to as a priest even years after leaving the monastery. Sometime after this, in the 1430s, Filippo is supposedly captured by pirates from North Africa as he traveled between Ancona and Naples. The pirates take him to North Africa, where he is sold into slavery. Filippo would remain in chains for 18 months, until one day, he takes out a piece of charcoal and begins drawing portraits of the other slaves. This is reported back to the master of the house by the slaves, who view this as some sort of miracle. According to Vasari, realistic drawing was unknown in this part of the world, and they were astonished to see such lifelike portraits created with just charcoal. Filippo is brought into the house, where he completes various works for the master, and with his drawing skills, he is able to eventually win his freedom. The Moorish pirates take Filippo to Naples, where he's given his freedom. Now, this story could be a complete fabrication. We only really have Vasari's account, which is based on a local legend, but Filippo's career and whereabouts are unknown for most of the 1430s. So sometime before, or maybe just after this incident with the Moorish pirates, Filippo completes the altarpiece of the Coronation of the Virgin. It's said that he had no money for apprentices, and he worked with two friends from the monastery, Fra Carnevale and Fra Diamante. This particular work was commissioned for the Church of Sant'Ambrogio by Francesco Maringa, who left money for the completion of the altarpiece in 1441. The painting itself would not be complete until 1447. The scene itself is set in heaven, which is typical for this subject. What's unusual is that he didn't use gold gilding for the background, as was typical for altarpieces of this nature, but rather an architectural space that uses perspective. Of course, we see this with Fra Angelico and some other artists prior to Filippo Lippi. The figures are surrounded by angels and saints, and all of these figures are in perspective. The composition itself forms a triangle with the Virgin's head being the very top of the triangle. Now, triangles are important symbols during this period of the Renaissance. No, it's not a symbol of the Illuminati, as many modern fiction writers might leave you to believe. It's usually meant to represent the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we'll see the triangle used again and again in Renaissance art. It's also believed to be the perfect geometric shape, and that also lends itself to an interpretation for divine perfection. Kneeling to the right are the figures of the patron, whose donation purchased the work, as well as Fra Filippo Lippi himself. Lippi himself is portrayed in the habit of the Carmelites, which leads us to believe he had not yet left the order, as Vasari had stated. Filippo would return to Florence, where he would be commissioned to paint an altarpiece for the nuns of San Ambrosio. This particular convent was a favor of Cosimo de' Medici, and he likely paid for the commission. This brings Filippo Lippi into the Medici circles, and Cosimo was his greatest patron. Cosimo sent several of Lippi's paintings to the Pope, bringing him even greater fame. However, one major flaw in Lippi's personality was his lustful nature. Vasari describes him as this, quote, So amorous, that if he saw any woman who pleased him, and if they were to be one, he would give all his possessions to win them, end quote. 
If this were not possible, he would just conjole them to sit for a portrait. This became such an issue that Cosmo de' Medici resorted to locking him in his house, under guard, so that he would finish important commissions. This tactic, however, inevitably fails, and Lippi would only escape to pursue the opposite sex. The way Vasari describes him, he's almost like a tomcat on the prowl. In one incident, after being locked into his house, he supposedly cuts the sheets from his bed and fashions a rope. After escaping, he spends several days carousing and drinking before Cosmo is able to find him and bring him back home. After this incident, Cosmo agreed never to lock him up again since it only seemed to make the situation worse. Filippo's skill as a painter often allowed others to overlook his misdeeds and his flaws in his personal life. While painting with his friend Fra Diamanti, he was commissioned to paint an altarpiece for the nuns of San Margarita in Prato. While there, he became infatuated with a young girl named Lucrezia, who was either entrusted to the care of the nuns or a novice nun herself. He asked and received permission from the nuns to paint a portrait of the girl. But while he was alone, he made his move. Vasari says that Lippi kidnapped the girl under the pretext of visiting the girl of Our Lady, a local relic. Whatever the situation was, she refused to return to the convent, and she was soon pregnant with his child. The son she bore Lippi was also called Filippo, and he would become a great painter in his own right during the High Renaissance. It's possible that we actually have a painting of Lucrezia and their child together. The particular painting I'm referring to is known as the Madonna and Child, and it was painted in tempera on panel. Now, the date of this piece is unknown. Traditionally, it is believed to be a portrait of Lucrezia, and some have speculated that the child is actually Filippo's son, placing this work around the year 1457. The Matana and child motif itself is not uncommon. However, this scene takes place in front of an open window, something that would have been very unusual in Italy during this time. This motif, however, was not uncommon in Flemish art, and this shows us that Filippo was inspired and influenced by the art of Flanders. Somehow, this particular work ended up in the collection of the Medici and would eventually become part of the Uffizi Gallery. Another interesting painting from the late 1450s is the Adoration in the Forest. Completed in 1459, it presents an unusual image. Instead of the interior of a stable, with the pair surrounded by shepherds and kings, they are alone in a dark forest. This piece was commissioned by Cosmo de' Medici, and like the others, it's also completed in egg tempera. The two main characters, of course, are Mary and the Christ child, but we see two characters present in the background. John the Baptist, who is the precursor to the Messiah, the one who prepared the way, and St. Bernard of Clairvaux, founder of the Cistercian monastic order and a devotee of Mary. God the Father looks down from above, releasing a dove that represents the Holy Spirit that flows between the Father and the Son. The flowers around the Christ child have five petals, and these symbolize the five wounds he would receive during the crucifixion. The thorn bush is to remind the viewer of the crown of thorns that Christ would wear. The interesting part about the background is it was painted specifically for Cosimo de' Medici, and it depicts the woods of Camadoli just outside Florence. This is where the Camadolite order was founded in the 11th century, an order that Cosimo was particularly devoted to. This particular work would become the most popular and copied painting of its day. The painting would be sold to an English merchant living in Prussia named Edward Soli. 
It was then brought to Berlin, but when Soli fell into financial troubles during the war with Napoleon, he was forced to sell his entire art collection to the Prussian state. During World War II, the painting was hidden to protect it from bombing raids. Ironically, it was hidden inside of an anti-aircraft installation, which was deemed the safest place to keep it. Just prior to the end of the war, the painting was then hidden in the salt mine of Merkers, where it would soon be discovered by American forces in 1945. This painting was actually the center of the only known mutiny of American officers during World War II. Officers of the Monuments Men Division were ordered to pack up the painting to be shipped to the United States as war reparations. The men refused. Eventually, they relented after they were threatened with court-martial. Once it was shown to the National Gallery, however, public opinion turned against the appropriation of works of art from the Axis powers, and the painting was restored to the German government in 1949, along with many others that had been taken during the war. After he completed this painting, he was commissioned by the Commune of Spoleto to paint the chapel in their principal church. Near the completion of the painting in Spoleto, Filippo died suddenly at the age of 57. There were rumors that persisted that he was poisoned by relatives of Lucrezia because he had refused to marry her, despite having been given a papal dispensation so he might do so. This rumor is repeated by Vasari in his biography of Filippo Lippi. Filippo's son, also named Filippo, was only 10 years old at the time, and he was left in the care of Fra Diamanti. Filippo's body was then given over to Sandro Botticelli, a former student of his, for burial. The Florentines later attempted to reclaim the body of Filippo, but the city of Spoleto refused to relinquish it. The Medicis then agreed to pay for a memorial for the artist inside of Spoleto. Don't forget, I've posted images of all the works we've talked about in this episode, as well as a few additional ones, on the website. And that is www.therenaissancepodcast.com. As we finish this episode, I do have a few announcements regarding the show's production schedule over the next few weeks. My wife and I are expecting our first child very soon, and this obviously will affect our production schedule for the next few months. I also will be spending much of October working on projects related to the Bartram Trail Conference. I have a show of my work, and I am also one of the speakers there. So, needless to say, the next few months will be very hectic. Now, I plan to post the episode on Botticelli next week, and then take about four weeks off while we adjust to life with a newborn. When I return, we will discuss the last three artists of the early Renaissance, Verrocchio, Perugino, and Ghirlandaio. Originally, I was planning to break after these three artists, before we begin the High Renaissance, but I think these will be great introductions to the High Renaissance, since those three are the teachers of Leonardo, Raphael, and Michelangelo, respectively. Since so much of their research will overlap, I think this makes sense. This is my plan for now, but as you know, babies have their own timeline, so this may or may not happen exactly as planned. Just remember, subscribe to the podcast. That way, you can be kept up to date over the next few months as new shows are published. I promise I won't disappear forever, so have no fear. We will have the opportunity to delve into the High Renaissance, which is one of my favorite periods of art. I would like to remind everyone again to please subscribe to the feed on iTunes, and I would like to let everybody know the show is also available on Stitcher, so please subscribe to the feed on iTunes or Stitcher, and please consider writing a review for the show on either iTunes or Stitcher. 
This will help us spread the word about the show so we can keep producing more episodes. As the show gets more reviews, it becomes more visible on both iTunes and Stitcher. So the reviews become very important in making the show more available to other listeners. If you would like to support the podcast, please remember that you can do this by using Amazon. Just click on the Amazon search bar in the upper right corner of the website, which is therenaissancepodcast.com. A percentage of each purchase you make will go to help the show. And this is a great way to help us out as there's no cost to you. Just remember for your next Amazon purchase, use the search bar on therenaissancepodcast.com. There's a donation button located in the upper right corner just above the Amazon search bar where you may make a donation of any amount to help the show. No amount is too small and we appreciate all donations. Join us next time as we explore the life and the work of Botticelli.